This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Company Cars podcast. On today's show, we'll once again return to a time before the pandemic. And specifically, we're returning to December 29th, 2019, when the former CEO of Nissan and Renault, Carlos Ghosn, was discovered to have escaped from Japan, where he was under house arrest for financial crimes and misconduct related to his time at Nissan, where he had spent nearly two decades. How did Carlos Ghosn go from one of the automotive industry's most prominent genius CEOs to a wanted international fugitive? Over the next two episodes, we'll explore Carlos Ghosn's impact and legacy on the two automakers he ran, and we'll walk through his meteoric rise and controversial retirement. Then we'll discuss in detail the allegations that led to his arrest, why he chose to flee, and what happens next for the former jet setter. Plus, on today's show, we'll take a listener question about hybrids, and we'll explore why rental car roulette seems to be on vacation right now. This episode of the podcast is going to focus on Carlos Ghosn's career and his time at Renault and Nissan and the legacy he left behind. In the next episode, we'll talk about his controversial retirement and the allegations that led to his arrest and some more details about why he chose to flee and what we think might happen next for the former jet setter. Who is Carlos Ghosn? So Carlos Ghosn is not quite the household name in the United States that he is in Japan where he actually had a cartoon series made about him and his saving of Nissan during the late 1990s and early 2000s. But for us, Carlos Ghosn is a French-Brazilian-Lebanese automotive executive. He spent his whole life in automotive, so he started his career at Michelin, the French tire company. And after a career in the R&D division working on tires, he was given the task of increasingly complex turnarounds. So first, he was given the task of turning around the operations at a factory, which he did ahead of schedule and under budget. And then he was given the task of turning around Michelin's Latin America operations and then Michelin North America. And he was the CEO of Michelin North America from 1990 to 1996 and was a fairly successful tire executive. But despite a fairly successful career at Michelin, Carlos Ghosn is not particularly famous for his time there. He's most famous for the two jobs he held after he left Michelin. So after he left Michelin, he went to Renault, the embattled French carmaker. And there he was tasked with a series of turnarounds and returning Renault to profitability as the company had just become privatized and separated from the French government. And he was very successful. And so he started to develop this reputation as a turnaround artist and somebody who could come into a very damaged company and fix things very quickly and very effectively. So at Renault, Carlos Ghosn had broad responsibilities as head of the transformation. And he was known around the company as Le Coskiller for the intensity and pace with which he restructured Renault and took cost out of this extremely bloated quasi-state-owned enterprise. He was able to return the company to profitability within a few short years. And even though he's often not super remembered for this first role at Renault, it was this role that set him up for the game-changing transaction and event that would define his career, change the automotive business, 
and catapult him from this competent and successful automotive executive, of which there are many out in the world, into this household name that's famous across the world, covered in all of the business press, and followed by lots of individuals. The most important thing to remember about this first stint at Renault was Carlos Ghosn's laser focus on taking out cost and taking it out quickly. So this relentless focus on cost and profitability and doing it fast, it's going to come back to haunt him, Nissan, Renault, and the Renault-Nissan alliance. But nobody knows it quite yet. So right now, in this part of the story, Carlos Ghosn is just a very successful transformation officer. Before we talk about the Renault-Nissan transaction and the establishment of the alliance, we need to set the automotive landscape in 1999. So Carlos Ghosn was this high-performing Renault executive, and Nissan was on the verge of bankruptcy. They had spent a decade chasing Honda and Toyota, and somehow just always ended up half a step behind them in terms of the quality of their products and how expensive it was to build them. And so Nissan was in bad financial shape, and industry analysts felt that the company was probably going to go bankrupt, and it was unclear if Nissan could survive the bankruptcy or if they would be chopped up and sold off in pieces. Stepping back a bit too, consolidation was this massive buzzword of the 1990s. So the 1990s saw this series of M&A transactions in the automotive business where a lot of companies were changing hands and larger companies were swallowing smaller companies because a lot of industry analysts felt that companies needed to get increasing economies of scale to make it efficient to meet increasingly challenging fuel economy, emissions, and safety standards across the globe. So getting economies of scale was kind of this buzz phrase, catchphrase of the 1990s automotive business, and a lot of companies partook. So General Motors purchased Saab, for example. Ford purchased Jaguar, Volvo, and eventually Land Rover. And the big transaction of the 1990s was the 1998 merger of Daimler-Benz, the parent company of Mercedes, and Chrysler, the American manufacturer of minivans and pickup trucks. And so we have a newly merged Daimler-Chrysler in 1999, and Carlos Ghosn is looking at this and seeing it and thinking, well, wait a minute, we as Renault don't have the economies of scale of Daimler-Chrysler or Ford or GM or Toyota. Neither does Nissan. We're doing very well as Renault. Nissan is not doing very well. So this maybe is an opportunity for us to team up. But Carlos Ghosn knew kind of the limitations of pursuing a merger. So the Daimler-Chrysler merger had gotten off to a rough start and never really recovered. And so Carlos Ghosn was savvy enough to recognize that maybe a merger wasn't the way to go. Plus, Renault still had this component of being somewhat related, but not quite related to the French government. And Carlos Ghosn knew that the Japanese government would be very sensitive about selling off this pride of Japan. And even though Nissan was struggling mightily, the Japanese government still really liked the fact that the country had three automakers. So Carlos Ghosn needed a way around this. And the solution that he came up with was extremely elegant and is what defined his career. And that brings us to the alliance. 
And what the alliance is, is Carlos Ghosn and Renault agreed to purchase a substantial stake in Nissan and bring a lot of fresh capital and money to help turn around Nissan. And Carlos Ghosn would become the CEO of Nissan to replicate his turnaround success at Renault at Nissan. And the two companies formed an alliance where they agreed to cooperate and share certain components in their cars. So things like engines, chassis, and other parts that customers wouldn't notice or see. But if they combined, they would have huge benefits from scale and they could negotiate with suppliers with much greater negotiating leverage. And eventually Nissan made a smaller investment in Renault so they would have a stake in each other's performance. But the two automakers would remain autonomous and they would keep their headquarters in France and in Japan. They would keep all of their own brands and they would produce their cars independently. So to the consumer market, they would be separate companies. And this way, this kept the French constituency happy and this kept the Japanese constituency happy. And it provided the two companies with a lot of the benefits of a merger without actually going through the messiness of a merger and trying to integrate everybody. And this is what set it apart from the Daimler-Chrysler merger, where the two companies actually formed, but in the Daimler-Chrysler merger, the two companies were so different and they each had their own culture that there ended up being a lot of infighting within the company. And Carlos Ghosn didn't want to deal with that. So his plan was, let's keep a lot of the company separate and where we can cooperate and work on the same things together, we'll do that and we can save a ton of money on those pieces. So in a sense, he got the benefits of a merger without some of the cost. Key to the alliance was Carlos Ghosn, who at the time was going to be the COO of both companies and lead the same turnaround plan at Nissan that he did at Renault with a laser focus on cutting costs and cutting costs quickly. And because he was central to the alliance, he had to have leadership roles at both places. And for a long time, after the establishment, he became the CEO of both companies, and he became the only individual who was running two Fortune Global 500 companies simultaneously on two different continents. And this was just incredible, right? So he was spending all this time traveling between France and Japan, and eventually he was spending a lot of time in the U.S. as well because the U.S. market was very important for Nissan. So he was commuting between California, Tennessee, France, and Japan, and jet-setting all around the world to run these companies. But he was really integral to the alliance, and he was a lot of what made the alliance work because he could see what was going on on both sides of the alliance and could look at these opportunities where they could work together that maybe other people in either company couldn't really see. And because he was leading both companies, his interests were to find all of these savings as much as possible. So he wasn't focused on just making sure there were benefits for Nissan or just making sure there were benefits for Renault. He was truly incentivized to find benefits for both companies. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of Integrated Derivatives.
If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. Carlos Ghosn came into Nissan, and he laid out his playbook and started cutting costs left and right. So he turned around Nissan within 18 months, and he turned the company from a record financial loss to profitability, which was incredible because a lot of industry analysts thought this was impossible. So he had done the impossible again, and he had laid out a series of very careful plans to return Nissan to success. As consumers, we saw this in the 2000s because Nissan produced a lot of really compelling and class-leading products. So they built these world-class family sedans. They launched a full-size pickup truck in the United States. They launched the first mass-market electric vehicle in the Leaf. And they built these really compelling luxury cars that were filled with technology that could rival or beat cars from BMW and Mercedes-Benz. So Nissan was on fire and rapidly growing throughout the 2000s, and times were good. Carlos Ghosn was so good at running both Nissan and Renault simultaneously that he was approached to run Ford. And he was also approached to pursue this mega alliance to replicate his success again between Renault, Nissan, and GM. But Carlos Ghosn turned down both opportunities for a variety of reasons that aren't super important. But... He was incredibly successful in the 2000s, and the alliance was on fire, and it seemed like Carlos Ghosn's idea that we could have a merger without really doing a merger was brilliant. And it seemed like Carlos Ghosn was King Midas. Everything he touched would turn to gold. Carlos Ghosn's longer-term legacy at Nissan and Renault, though, is much more mixed. So after a very successful 2000s, period. The 2010s will largely be looked back upon as a period of struggle for both Nissan and Renault. So despite being able to rapidly increase profits and sales volumes at Nissan, Renault struggled through the 2010s, and Carlos Ghosn was pursuing a series of strategies to increase profitability and sales volumes at Nissan that would boost the profits and sales at Nissan in the short term, but would have this longer-term price that Nissan would have to pay. So Carlos Ghosn pursued additional rounds of cost cutting and increasingly aggressive rounds of cost cutting to the point where consumers were starting to notice the quality of Nissan products deteriorating through the 2010s. Nissan also added a lot of incredibly aggressive sales promotions and discounts and sold cars heavily to major corporations and fleet buyers who buy thousands of cars at once but pay huge discounted prices. So they pay very little for these cars, even though they buy in large volumes. So all of these tactics caught up with Nissan eventually, because the first time you do a set of cost cuts, you you probably can find things to cut that don't detract from the car, but that save a lot of money. When you've done three, four, and five rounds of cost cutting, there's probably not much left without affecting what the customer sees. And Nissan had gone through many, many rounds of cost cuts through the 2000s and the 2010s. So when Carlos Ghosn left Nissan in 2018, Nissan was struggling in the United States because the company had started to develop a reputation for producing inexpensive, hugely discounted, low price, low quality products 
that not every consumer really wanted. All these cost cuts also led to lengthened development cycles for cars, and so Nissan products started to become a little bit uncompetitive relative to their Honda and Toyota peers in the marketplace by the time we get to 2018 and 2019. So as a CEO, I think Carlos Ghosn's legacy is always going to be a bit mixed, setting aside all of the things that come later about his alleged financial misconduct, his dramatic escape from Japan. Certainly, Carlos Ghosn deserves a lot of credit for being able to do the impossible twice at both Renault and Nissan, and for leading both companies through a golden decade of profitability and success during the 2000s. But I think it's an open question as to how sustainable his success was. Is Carlos Ghosn simply Lickoskiller and nothing more? So is he a one-trick pony who's only good at taking cost out? Being a successful automaker requires a lot more than just always taking out cost and always seeking economies of scale through an alliance partner. And while the idea of the alliance was a novel insight in the 1990s, the alliance by this point was very mature. And so we'll talk about this in a second, but there were some strains in the relationship in the alliance that made it not quite the same thing it was in the 1990s and 2000s. And the 2010s in general were tough for both Renault and Nissan, but how much of this is Carlos Ghosn versus a increasingly competitive, increasingly demanding automotive market? And how much of the blame falls to a distracted executive team at Renault and Nissan? So we don't have a lot of right answers here, but the complexity of Carlos Ghosn's legacy with its success and the hidden consequences of this success is something that we'll probably be debating in the car business for a long time, which is similar to how I might think about another famous turnaround artist in the car business. Uh, and I'm thinking of Sergio Marchione at Fiat Chrysler. Additionally, as the alliance matured and the demands for scale increased, the benefits of the alliance became stable and it was getting harder and harder to find incremental gains from working together. So as the alliance matured, Carlos Ghosn started openly exploring the idea of a full-blown merger where he would be the new CEO and the two companies would form into one and they could capture some of the additional savings that you would get from being one company instead of two. So having one accounting function, having one finance function, etc. But this merger idea really upset the existing Nissan team because the proposal that Carlos Ghosn was allegedly working on would leave Renault as the dominant shareholder controlling Nissan, despite Nissan having delivered more profitability in the decade leading up to 2018. So this structure rubbed a lot of the Japanese executives at Nissan the wrong way, and it contributed to increasing tension inside the alliance. In the background, from 2015 to 2018, tension was also increasing because each automaker was struggling to control what the alliance should focus on. So should they focus on EVs or pickup trucks or other projects? And they couldn't come to an agreement on what projects should take priority. This led to increasing resentment inside the Nissan team because Renault had a larger ownership stake in Nissan 
compared to Nissan's stake in Renault. So in essence, Renault had more control over the direction than Nissan, and Nissan felt ignored and not listened to. It also didn't help that the French government increased its voting power and ownership stake in Renault around the same time. And this effort was led by then finance minister, now prime minister, Emmanuel Macron. And this was viewed by many executives at Nissan and individuals in the Japanese government as a French takeover of this Japanese icon, where the French government was effectively taking over Nissan through Renault as a Trojan horse. And this created a lot of tension, and it made working together very difficult between the two automakers. So the alliance was a bit strained at this time as well. This strained alliance is the backdrop for what will come in the next episode, where we talk about the situation surrounding Carlos Ghosn's exit from Nissan, Renault, and the alliance, along with his later criminal arrest and escape from Japan. But the important thing to remember here is Carlos Ghosn was pursuing this merger, allegedly, where he would be the new CEO of the combined company, and the Nissan executive team was upset that Renault would be left as the dominant shareholder controlling Nissan. So this backdrop is very important to understand what's coming because a lot of the criminal charges are disputed by... Carlos Ghosn and Carlos Ghosn's legal team. So it'll be a bit messy in the next episode as we walk through this. And now it's time to talk about rental car roulette. If you've been listening since the first episode, you may have realized that rental car roulette appeared in the first episode and hasn't appeared since. And I wanted to address that. I'm planning on making rental car roulette a recurring segment similar to listener questions. But we've gotten some great listener questions recently, and so I've been focusing my time on those questions. And also, I usually only rent cars when I travel, and since we're in a global pandemic, I'm not really traveling, so there's not really a need to rent cars right now. But I am very intrigued, and it's a new year, and allegedly some of the rental car companies have bought some new cars. So once the peak period ends, I have some Hertz points I need to light on fire, and I will be promptly bringing... Uh, some new rental cars to the show, and we'll talk about them. So Rental Car Roulette is still around. It's just on vacation right now until Hertz award pricing drops a bit, and then we'll have some rental cars. Now it's time for listener questions. This week, we have a listener question about hybrid cars. Shin Yu from Ithaca, New York, writes in and asks, I'm debating between buying a regular crossover, like a Honda CRV or Subaru Forester, or a hybrid one, so like a Honda CRV or a Toyota RAV4. Could you discuss the costs and benefits of choosing a hybrid car? Yes, this is an excellent question. So we'll start with the benefits of a hybrid car. And the three biggest benefits, I think, are improved fuel economy, reduced tailpipe emissions, and stronger acceleration and power. So on improved fuel economy, this is the biggest benefit of a hybrid car. For example, the gasoline version of the Honda CRV gets about 29 miles a gallon, while the hybrid version gets around 38 miles a gallon. So you're using about one-third less fuel 
in the hybrid version of the CRV versus the gas version. So if you like saving fuel, whether it's for cost reasons or for environmental reasons, then a hybrid will get you there. The second benefit is reduced tailpipe emissions. So because you have this combination electric motor and gasoline motor, and the focus of both motors is on efficiency, Honda and Toyota have engineered these hybrids to have lower tailpipe emissions than their gas counterpart. So the gasoline engine that's linked to the hybrid powertrain also has additional engineering work and additional emissions control work done to it to reduce the tailpipe emissions of both cars. So these cars produce fewer other particulates compared with their gasoline counterparts. And the third big benefit is power. So in the Toyota RAV4, the hybrid version of the car is actually faster 0 to 60 in acceleration than the gasoline counterpart. And in the CRV, in both cars actually, because the hybrid battery provides all of its power immediately, even if it's not actually faster, say from 0 miles an hour to 60 miles an hour, it it can feel faster, especially if you're driving around town because the electric motor provides this boost in around town driving that makes it feel peppier. So those are the three biggest benefits of a hybrid car. And now we'll talk about the costs of choosing a hybrid car. So the biggest cost of choosing a hybrid car is the upfront price premium. For example, on the Honda CRV, it's about $2,000 to $2,500 difference between the gas and the hybrid version. So it's a pretty long break-even period for the CRV. Um, but for the RAV4, the premium is much smaller. The price premium is, is about $800 to $1,000 if you're comparing retail price to retail price. The catch is oftentimes there are fewer hybrids out there on the dealer lot than gasoline cars. So you might be getting a smaller discount on the RAV4 hybrid versus a RAV4 gas car. So the actual price gap might be more than the $800 or $1,000 on the window sticker. And with gas prices being as low as they are right now, you are paying a premium to get the hybrid. But gas prices are unpredictable. So 10 years ago, they were really high, and now they're really low, and they could become really high again in a few years. So think of the upfront premium as something that you're paying to hedge against the possibility that gas prices will go up. The other big downside to choosing a hybrid, specifically for the CRV or the RAV4, is the all-wheel drive system. So since you live in Ithaca, and I think Ithaca gets a decent amount of snow, this might be an issue. So the CRV in general has an on-demand all-wheel drive system that only comes on when it detects your front wheel slipping. So this is designed to save gas and minimize having to send power to all four wheels. But this means the CRV's all-wheel drive system, whether in the hybrid or the gas car, is less responsive than an always-on all-wheel drive system like you might find in a Subaru. And for the Toyota RAV4, the hybrid version uses a unique all-wheel drive system where it's called electric all-wheel drive, and the all-wheel drive assistance at the rear wheels is provided by a pair of electric motors back there. And this means that there's a limit to how much power can be sent to the rear wheels because the electric motors are not going to be as powerful as having the gasoline engine shifting energy to the rear wheels. But this is designed to save fuel and to minimize the complexity. So 
These two all-wheel drive systems, I would say they're perfectly fine if you're driving primarily on plowed or salted roads, and they'll help you get where you're going, and they'll help you get unstuck if you get stuck under light circumstances. But if you're driving a lot on unplowed roads or in the dark or when it's a blizzard, then maybe a more sophisticated all-wheel drive system like what's offered in the Subaru Forester or what's offered in the higher-end trim levels of the Toyota RAV4 gas version, maybe those might be a better fit for you. So that's just something to think about as another downside specific to the CRV or the RAV4. Finally, as you're thinking about what cars you're interested in, all the cars you've mentioned, so the Forester, the CRV, and the RAV4, they're all excellent small SUVs. So really, the right one for you is going to depend on how you fit with the car. So when you sit in the car, can you see clearly out of it? Are you comfortable behind the wheel? Do you like where all the features are laid out? Do you like the feel of the engine and the feel of the drivetrain? So what I would recommend is if you're torn between a hybrid CRV and a gas CRV, is I would test drive both versions. So a hybrid will feel a little bit differently at first, the first couple times you drive it because it's just so quiet off the line, but you do get used to it and it is something that can be really enjoyable if it's to your liking. And there's no right or wrong answer here, but it all just comes down to personal preference. The other thing I would point out is both the CRV and the RAV4 hybrid in this situation are pretty no compromises hybrids. So you're not making a lot of trade-offs aside from price to get the hybrid version. For example, the RAV4 hybrid gets better gas mileage than the gas version, has stronger acceleration off the line, and is only mildly more expensive than the gas version. So I would recommend if you're getting a RAV4, get the hybrid version. I think many people actually believe the hybrid engine in the RAV4 makes it a better car because it's quieter, it's smoother off the line. So specifically for the RAV4, I think the hybrid is the way to go. On the CRV, I'm a little less sure. It comes down more to personal preference with that one, I think. So you'll just have to try out both and see what happens. And unfortunately, Subaru doesn't sell a hybrid Forester, but perhaps this will change in the next few years. I don't know. But just something to think about. And I think you have a list of all-stars in this segment. There's a lot of compact SUVs out there, and these are three of the stronger entries in the segment. So there's really no way you can go wrong between any of them. And I hope you have fun car shopping and that you are able to get a good feel for what car you're most comfortable with and you feel like is a good fit for you and your life. So good luck shopping, and I'm glad you wrote in. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast, and so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On, and our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me More. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. A special shout out to our service and maintenance intern, Get a Warranty. So that's going to wrap it up for us today. Join us again on another episode of Company Cars, where we'll explore another question about the car business.